Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Catherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1938, and our book is The Death of the Heart by Elizabeth Bowen. I'll be talking with Lucy Ferris, who is the author of 11 books, most recently Foreign Climes, which received the Bright Horse Books Prize. There's more information about her other work in our show notes, so there's a lot of books. Uh, but I wanted to highlight her newest project, which is coming out in 2023. Uh, she has a book about Christina Stead's novel, The Man Who Loved Children, which we discussed on this podcast in the fall. Um, and Lucy actually got in touch with me about that episode, and um, that's how we eventually started this episode. So um, thank you to Lucy for doing that, always. For a summary of this book, uh, it's a simple story, but I'm going to add some details so that all the subjects we cover in our conversation make sense. It's about a 16-year-old girl called Portia who's orphaned, um, and she's sent to live with her half-brother Thomas and his wife Anna. Um, and she confides in the servant Matchett, and she keeps a diary. Um, and then she falls in love with one of Anna's friends, a young man called Eddie. Um, and then she goes to the seaside. There's like a, a patch where she's on vacation uh, when Thomas and Anna need a break from her. Um, eventually, it's clear that Eddie doesn't love her. And she finds out that Thomas and Anna have been reading her diary and laughing about it behind her back. And she runs away to the hotel room of a friend that she also knows that they make fun of behind his back um, called Major Brutt. And um, she begs him to marry her so that she can like shine his shoes and do little tasks for him because then she would be useful to someone in some way. And um, he declines and calls Thomas and Anna to come pick her up. Um, and the book ends without any reunion. Um, Anna has some understanding of why Portia ran away uh, even though she dislikes her, is made uncomfortable by her, um, she can see that all Portia wants is to be treated with feeling, which Anna herself has basically given up hope of, um, even though she also wishes for that. Um, and throughout the whole book, Portia is almost unbearably innocent and direct and never really understands why people don't say exactly what they mean. Um... The book is very subtle, so it's um, it's an interesting it's an interesting contrast. There's a lot to talk about. So here's our conversation. Lucy, I um, before I hit record on this, I already thanked you for being on this podcast, but I'm going to do it again because um, I want all the listeners to also know that I'm so grateful to you for being 
on this podcast and for choosing this book, which I had been meaning to read Elizabeth Bowen for ages. And um, I, I don't know how I never really read her before. But this book blew me away. It was just, it is, yeah. it, it's so beautiful. It's like you, I had to pause and write down sentences because they were so beautiful. And it made me emotionally uncomfortable inside myself in a way <laughs> I feel is rare when you're an adult to read fiction that makes you actually confront something inside yourself that you maybe didn't know about. We'll get to that. Um, tell me about what it is to you. How did you, how did you come to this book? So I can't remember when I first read it. I I knew Elizabeth Bowen first because she has an amazing set of instructions for writing fiction and that I used in classes for many, many years, it, mostly because they were very succinct and they were very firm and authoritative. Like, this is what you do with dialogue. This is what a plot is supposed to be. And and everything that she said was unusual. Like, one of my favorite uh, pieces of her advice about dialogue is something nobody even understands. I don't even understand it, because it goes back to the way that cars were operated in the 1930s and 1940s. She says that dialogue should have the effect of being choked, as in engine. Oh, wow. And I know that my father used to talk about choking an engine in a car, it, which and then she says more to be said than can come through. And I guess when you choke an engine, it's like in cold weather, you would do something that would make the gasoline spark out more intensely because you closed the hole. I don't know anything yeah. more about yeah. it, but. I, I love that. I love that piece of advice, effective choking as in engine. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I, I came to her. I thought this is somebody who really knows what she's about. She, she has what, whether these apply to other people or not, she's got a sense of what she's doing as a fiction writer. So I read death of the heart, which just, in some ways feels so simple, feels like just the story of a disappointed adolescent crush. And yet it does, It's that's a hell of a title because it does somehow get you in the heart. I, I don't care how old you are. And, uh, and, and it isn't just the main character, it's everybody else too. Um, so... I was really glad to revisit it in yeah. many years. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to say that one of the ways that it touched my heart was I felt so resistant to Portia at first. I, um, and I, I felt resistant to her because I felt like the, the part of her that reminded me of myself at 16 or, you know, I, I was like, you're not allowed to be like that. You're not allowed to just go into life getting, it's not that she's angry that people aren't how she expects. It's that her expectations are like this sort of engine that is propelling her into situations um, where when the reality conflicts with her expectations, she doesn't just decide to believe in the reality. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, right. No, she keeps protesting it. Exactly. Yeah. It's like she keeps refusing to to um, to lose that innocence. <laughs> you know. Well, I think yeah. My favorite example of that in the book is when um, the guy she considers to be her boyfriend, Eddie, um, she spots him holding someone yeah. else's hand in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. And when she asks him about it, and she asks this other young woman about it, they keep kind of, you know, oh, well, you know, I, I felt matey or, you know, she put pressure on me. And she says, oh, you mean when you held her hand? Exactly. And she keeps using that expression again and again. Oh, when you held her hand. And it's like other people don't want to say, well, I was holding her hand. They want to talk uh, in more sort of general terms. And she keeps coming back to that in a in a way that yeah we all resist it makes you cringe exactly there's this but it is about like, the guy holding this other person's hand exactly exactly it's like and she, she even says in there like but you've known me longer you know me better why did you yeah. hold her hand and not my hand and it's like you're not allowed to say that like you have to just kind of get along sometimes like stop making it weird but then it's like why is she not allowed to make it weird like get in there be weird make it weird because the other guy is certainly not um he's not concerned about whether the way he's behaving is too much like himself you know it's like (laughs) he's just like it's just how i am i'm full of contradictions you could never uh, keep up with all the ways that I contradict myself. And he's like, that's awesome. Cause it's me, you know? And she agrees right. until, until she feels like it's actually gone too far and it is hurting her feelings. And then she's like, you hurt my feelings. Let's talk about it. And it's like, Oh my gosh, you can't say that, you know? Yeah. Um, and it, again, it, like you said, it's like, it's cringe, but it's from a place of honesty that, um, I both admire and also feel horrified by. Yeah. Right. Um, and the other people in the book are just horrified by it. That's which, which also makes you cringe at them. Yeah. Because they- well, okay. So I'm going to tell you some of the, there's one scene that um, I'm sure you remember also in detail where there's a man who's telling her that, um, Men like a really natural girl. They don't like nail polish. It's like, oh, nail polish. Is nail polish the thing that like makes men think that like so-and-so would not be a good wife and mother to their future children and so on? Um, uh, and he's like, you know, if you put stuff on your nails, men will lose all respect for you. Um, and then she sees him and the other men are dancing with women who are wearing nail polish because, of course, they are. Like, it's... Right. Um, and she sees this as a kind of um, hypocrisy, like, but the thing is that, you know, with my adult knowledge of the world, I would say that both sides of what he's saying are true and both sides of what he's saying are true in the book too, that there's like a truth of the mind and a truth of the body in a way where it's like, yeah. um, he actually does like a very natural and unaffected girl, which is what Portia is like, people do keep on wanting to engage with her and somewhat to mess around with her because she's so innocent. And um, 
like a fresh-faced 16-year-old who looks like she might be 10 and sort of doesn't know yeah. how to behave in any situation is actually an appealing figure to these people. Well, I, I want to. I just want to interrupt a second because of yeah, what yeah. you were saying about hypocrisy. Because oh, I don't talk actually a lot about hypocrisy, but yeah. Sorry, but I don't even think she thinks it's hypocrisy. She just thinks it's weird that you know that someone would say girls with nail polish. It, it, it doesn't. It's not logical. It doesn't make any sense to her. I yeah. don't think she actually thinks of it as hypocritical even because the judgment that we feel really comes from sort of the juxtaposition of what she's trying for and what she's faced with it doesn't actually she's always being accused of being judgy and she actually until the end of the book that's true that's absolutely true that judgy would be one step farther in a sense of um, entitlement. It's like she doesn't even seem in, like she feels entitled to judge. It's like just right. observing is already kind of taking it all out of her. Um, and that she doesn't know how to hide her observation. She doesn't know how to hide how much she's observing about the people around her. And that's why they act like she's being judgmental. Right. Um, so she does. Yeah. I mean, she does have her diary where she does put down some stuff. Yes. in an interesting way. Yes, but, and but like that feeling yeah, of like the unaffected girl. It's like, what does an unaffected girl see? It's like everyone wants to read her diary all the time. So it's like there is a way in which there is a way in which this, like the thing that she's being told about the nail polish, is true, and then another way in which it's completely false feels reminiscent of the first uh tableau i guess okay the first tableau yeah okay that there's a married couple in the, in the novel in the novel that there's a married couple yeah and the they have a child who's mostly grown that's thomas and then the father gets another woman pregnant and the mm -hmm. wife says all right we just have to get a divorce and you have to go marry her and raise that child. Um, it's what we have to do. It's the right thing. But th that means that there's two women who each have one child with this man. It's like there's two truths there that have equal claim in a way. And somehow he has to only be married to one of these women. Right. And neither of them is the obvious answer. It's like he does go away from Thomas's mother at her request and marries mm -hmm. Portia's mother and raises Portia and is unhappy, not terribly unhappy, but he has to give up his whole life and social stand, standing and live in these sort of like paid hotels. Um, but um, well, so let me let me just let me pick up on the thread of what you're saying. While yeah, you, there, while you there's go irreducible contradictions that can't be that can't be settled yeah. with anything. Anyway, sorry. Right. But the other thing that's interesting to me about that, what, what you're calling initial setup, is that there's absolutely no room. You sort of see where everybody comes from because there's no room in that initial setup for how anybody feels 
or what anybody's personal relationships are. I mean, it's almost, it sort of strikes me as being like Evelyn Waugh. I mean, it's, it's satire. It's, it's um, in a very cruel way, funny that this, this wife of long standing is like, well, hip, hip, hooray. I can just send him off with this other person. And, and I'm just, I'm just fine. I'm going to keep living in this house with my kid and everything's good. And he's made to seem kind of a bumbling fool, Um, not an adulterous husband, but a kind of bumbling fool who ended up with, you know, Irene and Irene is supposed to be some, you know, kind of ridiculous character. And that's all made absurd by the the essence of 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 at least the the wife the original wife having no personal feelings whatsoever and so there's a moment um early on i think it's saint quentin who kind of pops in and out as as the voice of the writer or whatever who's when they sort of like well what's what's wrong with portia anyway and he says well i think she misses her mother yeah. And there are just these little moments where she isn't just some, you know, weirdly ignorant uh, 16-year-old, but actually someone who's grown up in an extraordinarily difficult circumstances and whose parents, that, that this, she's traumatized. Yeah, yeah. That her mother was a real person, not just a kind of um, an absurdity and clown face. So yeah. it's weird how that that sets the tone for this whole world that she has such trouble negotiating in. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that the way that she wants to live in a world of feeling, but she does live in a world of duty, which is performed without feeling and often with unkindness, um, but it actually gave me, the book gave me a lot of respect for duty that's performed without feeling because if it weren't for duty performed without feeling, you would only have love that you earned and she's not in a position to earn love and it's fine. It's like, it's, it's like 16 year olds shouldn't have to earn love. It's like it's a, people should be allowed to be awkward teenagers and, um, it uh the way that she wishes to be loved it kind of reminded me of um dorothea brooke from uh, middlemarch the way that mm-hmm. she has this kind of brilliant desire to be good but it also means that she's a lot worse at knowing things than other people mm-hmm. like it she can make sort of spectacular mistakes that other people would see very obviously like, don't marry that guy. He's don't go marry major brother. Yeah, and well, exactly. So yeah. I think that that um, the way that Dorothea will marry Casabon is similar to how uh, Portia will. She'll just try to marry Major Brett, or she'll try to marry Eddie, or she'll. Well, I think when she tries to marry Major Brett, or at least proposes the idea. Um, she is at least sort of trying to get in line. I mean, it's the difference Matchett, who who is also an interesting uh, voice of a certain kind of truth in the in the book, distinguishes between what is good and what is right. 
And um, so Portia has been working on what is good and keeps missing, missing the mark on what is right. Exactly. And, uh, and, and, and so don't quite know how to define either of those things as, you know, the book sort of works toward defining them as, as you go along um, that, that toward the end, she's, she's making perhaps her first stab at trying to do what's, what's right. But even, even that, uh, he, you know, she, she's all thumbs at it. I think the amount I to she doesn't her. understand it though. It's like she, uh, she doesn't understand on a scale that, that the people who are less devoted to trying to understand things, like the people who just kind of float along, they wouldn't make a mistake mm. on that level, you know, because no. like just floating along and kind of going with it is not, it doesn't set you up for like a really spectacular mistake. Whereas um, the way that Portia is devoted to this pursuit of understanding and this pursuit of goodness and love in a way is um, it's like she understands so much less while understanding so much more in other ways. So it also gives her, I mean, one of the things that I, I caught on a lot more in, in rereading the book now that wasn't, it just wasn't, just wasn't something that had stuck in my head from reading it when I was much younger is that it isn't that she is heartbroken because Eddie throws her over that that's that's kind of in some ways the surface of the thing but she is able to see beyond that to what to her is a much bigger betrayal in other words she can put up with okay I fell in love with this guy but he's not all that into me in the end and he's really kind of a superficial uh guy anyway and 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 he and and whatever I want he's not going to give me and it's over and she can she can kind of bring herself to the point of accepting that. What she can't bring herself to accept is what's lurking behind that, which is this larger betrayal of people reading her diary and laughing at her. I can't remember who was it who said that what we fear most is being laughed at. And um, and that's Anna and and uh, St. Quentin and Eddie and even perhaps Thomas that that behind the scenes they have been laughing at her and yeah. that she's able to cut through to and see as the bigger betrayal so that it isn't just a story of an adolescent crush gone wrong it's this other bigger thing that she has the vision to see because of living, you know, living the way she's been living. There's another element to that that's um, that felt similar. It's not a misunderstanding. It's like she's actually correct about her lack of dignity and the cruelty of her situation. Um right where she she talks about how she knows that she costs money and that everything she does every minute she's alive is costing someone money essentially and that in some contexts she knows that that will be sort of smoothed over with family feeling in theory when she's living with her you know her half brother and his wife um but when she's in other contexts she's like if i invite a guest over and they eat cake that cake cost money. 
Right. Is that okay? Like, am I allowed to do that? And I think that there's um, like a more, you know, I'll use the word entitled again, because I think that it's part of her not feeling like she's entitled to pass judgment on anyone is that she doesn't know if she's allowed to have guests over who have a slice of cake. Um, that her position is so uh, fragile. And I was thinking right. in some ways it feels like a historical thing. And in some ways I was thinking um, like everything about her situation would be exactly the same now. You know, like I'm sure there's a million 16 year olds who are living with relatives where they're like, I don't really know if, I, if I'm like allowed to be a kid in this context. I don't know what I'm allowed to do and what would be kind of like a bridge too far like sort of like right between being a guest and being a family member. Um, right. And um, then there's a, there's a part also where she says like solitude is impossible, but we also can't choose our company where she knows that she's always like preventing Thomas and Anna from being alone and they resent her for it. They resent just her being there, being aware of them. Like it's, it's like she's preventing them from conducting their lives just by observing them. Um, and I was thinking that also is still true. It's like we mostly, you know, spend time with people like coworkers or the other parents at your kid's school or whatever it is. It's like most people spend most of their time um, with people that they didn't choose. And right. um in a somewhat fragile condition of uh, like I'm here, but I could get fired or, you know, like I don't quite know if I'm allowed to fully be a person in this context. Well, and you don't, and you don't know at what point uh, people see you as only taking from them, taking their time, yeah. taking their energy. I mean, this is the terrible moment when this, Poor guy, Brut. Um, you know, when when Portia tells him, which I, I also found interesting. I mean, for someone who is always so, you know, sort of sweet and kind, she's also brutally honest to Brut, um, telling him that they're laughing at him too. And his entire world crumbles because he realizes he's, he's been nothing but an imposition on these people. The only one who doesn't seem to be an imposition on this couple, which is a couple i mean you don't even know if they love each other or anything yeah. um but the only one who doesn't seem to be in position is this guy saint quentin and he's gay yeah um and somehow that seems to work for them <laughs> um yeah so i was thinking um and i wonder how much you think this is a useful lens because usually i don't really think this is a useful lens for um understanding literature does she seem like she was like maybe autistic, like if we were to read her now. Like a little on the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. So maybe she's on the spectrum, which I think of as like, like if you took a really non-stereotyped view of what it would mean to process social interaction in a neuroatypical way, it's like, I'm not, I'm not trying to like fit her into a diagnosis. I'm more like there's something about how it's like she's so alert to social situations and then she's processing them in a way 
that makes everyone around her think like you're right, but somehow you're wrong. And I was thinking about how people talk about like when they're adults and they get diagnosis of, you know, a autism spectrum, whatever, that kind of thing. And they're like, oh, wait, this explains a lot about my teenage Mm -hmm. years, you know? But I also think trauma does. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, when I was older than 16, old enough to know better, 19, um, I chased a boy to Europe and uh, had very much, you know, this kind of like all-consuming crush Mm -hmm. that uh, that you see in this book and you see in other books where I, you know, I sort of thought, well, this, this is my destiny. You know, that this boy was, was studying abroad for the whole year. And I dropped out of school for a semester and just managed to sort of find myself in Austria and drop him a casual note saying, well, gee, it's funny how we seem to be in the same country. And <laughs> it was, of course, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was very clever. Um, it convinced my parents to my utter astonishment that it would be a very good thing for me to leave school for a semester and go work in a hotel in Austria and that this would save them money. I I, I can't believe they fell for that, but I think they actually did. Anyway, my point so is it was a disaster. Sorry, it was a disaster. It sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, well, but it was it was kind of the right kind of disaster, but it, it was a disaster. But one of the things that I took me years to realize, and this guy and I are still friends here decades later, you know. This doesn't have, sound like a disaster. I'm sorry, this sounds like maybe your parents were right to let you do this. Maybe so. I mean, okay, what happened was tell me how it turned out. Me, which me. Was what yeah, yeah, but, but the, what I realized many years later was that uh, one of the reasons that he was spending the entire year abroad was that his mother had died of cancer the summer before. Oh, oh, and that yeah. also made him behave in, in in very peculiar ways, in 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 ways that were stunningly weird to me, and that I somehow thought, you know, if he would just if he would just love me, I would solve whatever these problems are that he's having. Yeah. But the problems that he was having in communicating and and being able to be in any kind of relationship uh, at all had a whole lot to do with the fact that his mother had just dropped dead of cancer and in, and, and in fact had not told him or or the her other children that she was ill and until oh, so she was on her deathbed so i i think it's very hard to judge whether she is as you say on the spectrum or whether she's traumatized and well, traumatized not just by the death of her mother but also she's been living a pretty traumatic life i mean almost no money living in cheap hotels not having any yeah. friends other than her mother uh and the book doesn't go into any of that it's left to us to to fill that in and i my own sense as a writer is that the reason that bowen does that is that if she filled it in in any way, because she's always writing from one point of view or another, yeah, it would have to be someone's point of view that filled that in for us. And it's really important to Bowen that we see that nobody else gets it. Yeah. Nobody else gets where this girl has actually come from. So there's this kind of lacuna in the in the in the story about that that. As I say, for me, I picked up because I had this own my personal experience with someone who was very traumatized by a parent's death. Sure, but yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, I don't actually think it's all that, it's not all that useful really to, I mean, and this is why people don't like to diagnose characters with stuff. It's like, it's not really useful as, as a lens other than like, that there's definitely people who have good reason to not just be able to kind of go along with how everyone's doing things and just figure like, oh, the logic of this doesn't really matter that much. Um, this is just how society is. I'll just sort of float along and be fine. Um, mm-hmm. And it's obviously, it's an asset to society that there are people who will say, wait, this doesn't make sense at all. This is a really yeah. <laughs> this is bizarre, you know, um, and who will keep pushing and say, well, why were you holding her hand? Um, that um, like whatever the source is, everyone doesn't just get along. Everyone doesn't just snap into knowing how things are done and sort of feel like they can sort of be authentic in that, um, in that mold, you know? And obviously the mold isn't really working for any of the other characters either. You know, the the one, yeah, the the one that I, I get most interested in because there's another backstory we don't get really is the story of, of pigeon such interestingly named characters, right? Yeah. Um, Pigeon and Anna. It's like, what's that backstory even doing in here? Um, but my sense was that it's it's not exactly that that Portia and Anna parallel each other, but rather that Anna was figuring out what Portia isn't figuring out. So Anna's like, well, you know, she's obviously still in love with this guy who's long departed from her life, but she learned to get along, you know, and not like he wasn't that into me and um, it it hurts, but you know, it hurts over here. Yeah. I don't let it hurt in here. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I think the book is more in, in a way about Anna than it is that Portia is there to kind of um, it, it, I, there's, but, I've taken sketching classes and I I have to say this in French because I took the class in Paris and this is the way the teacher explained it to me, which was to dessiner dans la vide, which is to basically draw in the emptiness. So if you were trying to draw something rather than drawing the thing, you would draw all the space around it and the thing would kind of emerge in the drawing, which I think, yeah. And, um, And in some ways, Portia is like, the vid that that toward the end of the book, That's I sort of felt like, put. oh, I get, it. I get it. Anna is the thing that Portia could have become if she weren't Portia. She would just, you know, just kind of. Uh, let the scar tissue develop over here, and then go marry some guy who was appropriate and mm-hmm. not allow this to happen to her again. Yeah. So it, that's, I feel like that was in a way her function in, in the book. Um, we did an episode on Mrs. Dalloway for this podcast, uh-huh. um, which was really fun. And it was really yeah. interesting revisiting that book. Just, I don't know, I guess as a teenager, I had been more enticed by the, you know, love story and all that. And then as an adult, I think it, um, 
it just seemed so nihilistic. It's like she's so invested in and has decided to organize her life around the details of a party for people that she doesn't like or respect and has no interest in. And like, it just, it's so um, barren and awful that, you know, it's like, that's all she has is this sort of like doing the this dance, but it's only for people that, um, that she has no connection with really. And, uh, I think that's very similar to the position that Anna is in, that Anna has decided to just go along to get along and not make waves and not attach herself in a way that would hurt. Um, and, and she has nothing except a lack of pain. Which is something she, yeah. Well, except that she sort of realizes it at, at, at the end, you know, that, that there's this kind of moment where I, I, I I marked it in the book. Um, yeah, she says you know she keeps keep, yeah. They, 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 there's the hypothesis of what would you do if you were Portia, you know, because they're trying to figure out who to send to get her. And she says it's this is like this total break in the way Anna talks. That she says if I were Portia, and then she starts with well there'd be contempt, and then there would be boredom, and not wanting to know what it's about. And then she then she says frantic frantic desire to be handled with feeling yeah. and at the same time to be alone and and you suddenly think oh my god there's like this little Portia buried inside, inside Anna, Anna. Mm-hmm. and that's one reason she hasn't wanted she doesn't want Portia anywhere around because th- that might get tapped and oh my god we can't let that get tapped yeah all this huge need that she has it, it was a stunning moment, I think. It is. Yeah, it is a stunning moment. And it was um, It was kind of, it, I think it's difficult to dramatize. And I think in the movie, like we both watched the movie last night, which is <laughs> funny. Um, but uh, that um, it's Miranda Richardson who plays the role of, of uh, Anna. And I don't know, it just, it felt like, it went from being a movie to suddenly being like a Chekhov play or something, you know, like there's something very, there's something very uncinematic about that speech. It feels like a play. It feels like a monologue where like she's transforming in front of us. Which oh my is God, almost- I just thought I should make a play out of this. Yeah, well, it's actually, it's sort of unlike the the throttled engine dialogue. It's like she finally actually just says the thing. Yeah. Which the whole book has been her not saying that, which is. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I, I think of there's a, a moment, I think, speaking of movies, way back in Woody Allen's Manhattan, where Mia Farrow sort of plays the one who's got it all together. And um, I, I think it's, I can't remember which male character says to her, you know, well, you know, you don't understand this because you don't have needs. And she says, I have enormous needs. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> and that's, I get that same, same feeling here. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. But but neither and, and, and it ends after all with the, the book ends without Portia. I mean, it ends with those people in their drawing room and it ends with matchup. And Portia's gone mm-hmm. from this book. She's not there at the beginning and she's not there at the end. Yeah, because I think I mean there's various different ways we could interpret that, but I think that part of it is um the neither Anna nor Portia is going to get it's like neither of these strategies is going to mm-hmm. actually result in them getting their needs met. Right. It's like neither of them is, um, it's not an option. And um, that's, I guess why it's called the death of the heart. It's because it's like, it's like Portia has decided to try to make this deal with major Brett about mm-hmm. being useful that she's like, yeah. well, maybe I can't be loved but at least I would be useful. So I wouldn't essentially just be, you know, um, costing money to people and not knowing how much longer they'll put up with that. Yeah. I just, I just think that neither Anna nor Portia has a way forward where they'd be in better situation. Portia maybe because she could just sort of hang out for a few years and sort of get the lay of the land and maybe she'll fall in love with somebody more deserving than Eddie. And, you know, like, well, and and get a chance to grow up. I mean, one of the things that st- struck me again reading the book, sort of many decades on, was I was thinking I was the other comparison I was making was with Tender as the Night, which is of course oh, written during the same era, and the um, character of um, Nicole, I think the, the 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 young woman who falls in love with Dick Diver, um, in in Tender as the Night is kind of made out to be this um, angling young sophisticate. Um, and, you know, and they they actually have this kind of really very brief warped affair. I mean, Eddie, for all the terrible things to be said about him, uh, could easily have had uh, sex with Portia, and he doesn't. I was going <laughs> to say that. This, I actually... I have in my notes here. Yeah. <laughs> the lack of sexual yeah. violence or imposition <laughs> is interesting. It is interesting that that I mean there's the reference to it comes from from Thomas who says, you know, is he polite to you? Um, you know, does he try to just try to get some or something like that? And um and he doesn't and it, she's just there. She's a total prize for him to take whenever he wants. Yeah. Whereas in Tender Night, Dick Diver does take it. And um, and of course, that book's written by um, um, a man who also, I think, had an affair with like some 18 year old starlet or something at some point. But uh, there does seem to be a, a and maybe it's just the era. I'm not sure. But there seems to be a, a you know, a, a real erasure of any distance between um child or adolescent and adult i mean they're they judge portia they call her all kinds of you know animal names you know she's a snake she's a rabbit she's a this she's a that but she they're she's never referred to as a as a child or an adolescent in any way and uh, neither about, is the character in, in tenders they do talk uh, about her as being like a kid or just a kid or like i'm only saying that to you because you're a kid or you look like you're 10. well guys say that Guys oh, okay. who are flirting with 
Okay. Yeah. You know, Eddie calls her kid. And then there's this other guy at, at the party at Waikiki yes. uh, who says, oh, you're a sweet kid. But uh, that seems to me to me flirtatious lingo. I agree. I don't know. I also think that the word kid meant something more flirtatious then than it does now. I think it became mm-hmm. more of a childhood word and it was like a youthful but flirty, you know, kind of word. Yeah. When it first became popular. yeah, it was almost more sort of like you're you're up, you're up for anything we want to do. You're you're a, you're a, a good kid, um, or a bit like the here's looking at you, kid, like that kind of kid. kid. Yeah, yeah, that kind of kid. Not um, not you are in fact not yet ready. So, exactly. so the idea that Portia's going to marry anybody, she's sixteen. I mean, that sure you came know, through in the movie, yeah. Like just yeah. how young she is, right? And and actually, that I because I looked this up after I watched the movie. The oh, the actor playing her was, um, I think, twenty one, and managed to play a sixteen year old. I think very well. But Wait, how old was she? she was twenty one when she did it. Wow. When she played the part, she was and, a teenage like dork, you know. And I mean that affectionately. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought she was terrific, was and wonderful. she was. She was, you know, at the one time, at one and the same time, you identified with her and were totally annoyed with her yeah. all through the, the the film. And, um, you know, at the one point when Eddie says to her, and it's, the film is pretty, pretty true to the book. Um, you know, don't just let tears dribble down your cheeks. Cry, for God's sake. Yes. Yes. And she's, it's and, so... It's like the kind of, um, I mean, it's almost like the thing that you wish teenage girls were allowed to have in general, which is like a version of adolescence where they can try out their ability to flirt while they also have like food on their face. And then somebody will just be like, come on, wipe your face. Like you've got butter on your chin. (laughs) It's like that, that, that there would be that room to like try out your new skills um that isn't a world in which there's also like street harassment and you know right danger either be laughed at or taken advantage of yeah exactly where it's like you you want her to just be able to come of age in peace you know yeah like you want her to have like a little shallow end of the pool in which to paddle around and you know get her knee scraped like she's not maybe going to have an easy time maybe it's going to be hard but it's not dangerous you know and in some ways I think that this book is telling the story of a girl who has um experiences where she's allowed to be like an awkward dork but she's not being taken advantage of but then in, in other ways it's like the the cruelty of the people who see her doing that and have no sort of generosity or kindness. It's not the people that she's, you know, Eddie trying that she's trying to romance Eddie and Eddie is not ultimately the person, as you said, that breaks her heart. It's Thomas and Anna laughing at her and reading her journal. Yeah. It's like the, it's the lack of kindness from the adult world, not the targets of her romantic aspirations yeah and it would it would not none of that would be true if she were not sort of 
there by all by herself. You know, she doesn't, these people aren't her family yeah. and, um, and, and don't have any of the care for her that, that a family would. I mean, if she was in a dysfunctional family, if she was actually part of the family, then, you know, she would get egg all over her face from yeah. time to time. And, yeah. and, and you would say, well, that's, you know, you got to go through that before you're ready to actually go out and lead an adult life. But as it is that there aren't any different rules um for 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 her than there are for anybody else all the all the same rules apply they apply both when she's with thomas and anna and then when she goes to this other you know weirdly named place waikiki i find it interesting that the um the two other places in the book are waikiki and the karachi hotel yeah we're we're in England the whole time and they they get these kind of exotic names for these rundown places and and I suspect that she's been staying at places called things like Waikiki and the Karachi Hotel with her mother you know along the way but um but anyway she even when she's at Waikiki the two young people there are both a good deal older than she is they have jobs you know, they they smoke, they drink, they have affairs with with other young people around. They're in their early twenties, I think, and so there isn't the only person her age is this uh, Lillian at at school who um, just seems like uh, you know a girl who doesn't have other friends, so she sort of tolerates Portia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought that moving her from the one environment with Thomas and Anna to this other environment with the other young people. Um, I really liked it as a novelistic move to say, like, you may think she's having these problems because she's with Thomas and Anna who are sort of playing the role of her family, but are not actually her family. Like you said, like they're not people that she's known her whole life. They don't have a familial indulgence toward her. They're kind of annoyed she's there. And so you might think that she's having these awkward and difficult experiences because she's with these particular people. So let's put her in a whole different environment where she's around a lot of other people. Um, and she's still the exact same kind of weirdo. <laughs> and like, she's still that same person that you simultaneously, it's like, she's so endearing. And so yeah. like, it's just like you can't be like that. It's dangerous. It's not safe to be that kind of person, you know. Um, and I don't know. It made me love the book. It also it yeah. was just like very emotional to read it, you know. Yeah, it, I think she's in a lot of ways, at least for most of us. I mean, my my mother was very popular in high school, and she she had difficulty relating to to any oddity that I displayed. And she was sort of like, well, can't you just get along with all the other young people? I mean, I don't see what the problem is. And, and then you would hear some anecdote about how popular she was in high school. It's like, hey, stop. But anyway, <laughs> any of us who- has a cost also though. Yes, yes, I suppose. I mean, I've always said that that it's never a good idea to be a beautiful adolescent girl or an athletic adolescent boy, because after that, it's all downhill. Um, well, there's that, but it's also like if you're just gonna 
if you're going to be liked by everyone in high school, it's because your heart is already dead in some way. It's like the death of the heart that happens is because she. Yeah, that happened when you were nine. Yeah, but anyway, I I think that what what makes the book so challenging is that we all kind of carry. I don't want to speak for everybody else. I carry Mm -hmm. my inner lesson with me everywhere I go. Yeah, there is always, it seems to me, the possibility that I. you know, trip over my own feet, that I have, uh, I am suddenly thinking that I can be comfortable with these people and I'm being very witty and very funny and waxing eloquent. And then I suddenly I'm going to realize, oh, they just can't wait for me to shut up. And so if you carry that inner adolescent with you, wherever you go, then you are meeting her again. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, and the fact that her her situation remains unresolved mm-hmm. at the end, very deliberately unresolved. There is really nowhere that she goes, nowhere that she ends up. She knows she's not staying in that hotel room, yeah. but she doesn't seem to be going back to Thomas and Anna, or at least we don't, it isn't something that is imagined even in the book or going to that other end. We have no, there's a complete nullity. And so yeah. it leaves her, in this place of this, to say for me, the kind of inner adolescent that never does get fully resolved for many people, myself. Yeah, yeah. It definitely feels like, you know, if you were to think about like, in reality, what would be the next step for this person? It's like, well, she'd probably be sent to boarding school in Switzerland or something, you know, like they'd probably find some way to get rid of her that is reasonably respectable and but the problem that she's having of just having no way to be a person in the world is not resolvable because we only have examples of adults who have failed to resolve it right um right and the only people who seem to be able to to live in the world are ones who never felt this was a problem in the first place. Like, um, you know, some of the people in Waikiki, it seems like they don't seem to be necessarily, and maybe I'm wrong though. Maybe I'm just not remembering the details well enough, but um, the, what's her name? Mrs. Heckham. Um, who's yep. raising her late husband's children. I mean, maybe she also feels like, her duty to these children and her feelings are completely at war with one another. You know, it's like why those children are still living in her house because they're not children anymore. And they're not children anymore. But maybe she loves it. You know, maybe, maybe her feelings and the reality of duty are uh, aligned, but Mm I don't know. I I felt like the reality of duty actually came out pretty well in this book, even though. Well, match the match. It's the epitome of that, of course. Yeah. And, and but she lives pretty much entirely in the past. And, I mean, she reminds me, you know, um, uh, very much of the remains of the day. You know, where you feel like there, you know, there could be a whole book about Matchett where where you find out, you know, really what was happening with this family. But um, 
the interesting thing about, I mean, Bowen is very good at at resisting the uh, the conventional because you expect when Matchett sort of appears in the book and is the one that Portia talks to and so forth that she's going to end up being the housekeeper with a heart of gold. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, she isn't. Yeah. She, she's she's comprised entirely of duty and her duty is to the house and to the, I mean, I think it's Anna who says, well, you know, she comes with the furniture. So her yeah. du- duty is yeah. to the furniture and to the memory of Mr. Queen. And, yeah. uh, and that's entirely what motivates match it, which means that she doesn't get to fulfill the part of the, of the housekeeper where she's not Mary Poppins. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And in some yeah. ways it's just like, it's just kicking it. It's just kicking it along to say like, oh, well, maybe the, the people who are slightly related to Portia can cannot love her, but um, the person that they hire to do her laundry would be able to love her. And it's like, why would that be? You know, it's like, she's a person. She has her own limits, you know, and Portia is not especially lovable. Like even we as her readers who know her so intimately are kind of like, it's like she is kind of horrifying, even though she's also so lovable in a way. She's also so kind of she like makes frightening. Me, yeah, she makes me think of so when I was when I was twelve years old, I was sent to a a, a girls' camp that began at thirteen. Um, I was a year ahead of myself in school, and for some reason, my parents thought it was therefore appropriate to send me to this uh, eight week long summer camp with oh, uh, really people long. real real adolescent I mean I didn't have breasts yet you know yes. and they all had yes. they got huge ones. No, that's and, like, and wait they had huge yes. ones. did you say that sorry well they seemed to me to of because course. I didn't have of course and and, um, and and so like an idiot I signed up for junior life-saving uh-huh. and what Portia makes me think of is the the girls that I kept trying to save in junior life-saving and their role was to struggle and my role was to not let them drown me yeah. And uh, of course, any of them would have drowned me because I weighed yeah. 90 pounds soaking wet. They had these huge boobs. I didn't even know how I was supposed to hold them. <laughs> and, bring them into- and and so so Portia makes me think of that because I think you if you tried to rescue her, she would drown you. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, at, at, that is part of that's part of the problem and part of the kind of general s- s- survival technique of the world is that when we know people like this we will make gestures we will suggest gently ways in which they might learn to negotiate a little better but we won't actually rescue them because they'll drown us that's their power is is that they could drown us absolutely i i had that feeling when i was um when i was rereading the book i thought it's just like those girls (laughs) There's there's the character of St. Quentin, who's a writer. Yeah. Tell me more about what you're talking about. So Bowen was gay. Yeah. She was in a marriage of convenience. She had affairs with both men and women, but primarily women. Um, and as I say, she had this this set of of rules about writing that were like incredibly strict and um and and you know this was this was like the way to do the thing, and part of me wonder like what is Saint Quentin doing there? He has a a, a slight role 
in terms of, you know, who read Portia's diary and who told Portia, but someone else could have fulfilled that role. And it seemed to me that his very, um, you know, he's, he is kind of, as James Joyce would put it, uh, you know, uh, making things happen and then step, stepping aside and paring his fingernails. Yeah. And, um, and I, it seemed to me that and you don't want to think of him as Bowen. You want to think that Bowen is identifying with Portia because, you know, it's a story about an adolescent and, you know, Louisa May Alcott identified with, with Joe and so forth. But I think that my sense of Bowen is that she is, unlike Portia, was very, very good at negotiating her life as a lesbian in the in the society that she moved in and she had learned how to play all the games and and that she is there kind of in the guise of saint quentin you don't want that to be her guys but it no feels like i do that. i like it i like that reading a lot because i also i didn't put that together but i did have the thought that this doesn't feel like a book about how it feels to be the author of this book like, do you know what I mean? Like how sometimes like if you read like Great Expectations or Hamlet, yeah. it's like yeah. on some level, like Hamlet feels like that this is what it feels like to be Shakespeare play and right. Great Expectations to me. This is my reading, idiosyncratic. I think it's the, this is what it feels like to be Dickens book, you know? Um, yeah. sure. And uh, this doesn't feel like that to me. It doesn't feel like she's telling us something personal about her own ways of negotiating this question. It feels like, I think that maybe the question is resonant to her potentially, but I don't think that the mind of Portia would come up with this book. No, that I don't makes, think so. I think a mind that has respect for Portia's mind would come up with this book. Yeah. Um, and actually St. Quentin has, has that. And again, he's there at both the beginning and the end, he's sort of the bookends of the book, um, and it it feels that feels to me like a kind of stand-in for someone who knows this world really well and knows what everyone in the world has sacrificed. Yeah, and what they have sacrificed is writ large in Portia. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's the end of our episode on Death of the Heart. Thank you to Lucy and to Adam Bear for our music, as well as everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. As always, we love to hear from listeners. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tweet to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and goodbye till next month. <laughs>